This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe. Today we have a great guest on, his name is Eric McNulty, and he is a prolific writer and speaker in the area of leadership. I actually found Eric by reading an article on leadership and getting your senior leadership into your emergency uh, exercises and, and drills. And, you know, we've all had that suffer, that, that, con- that, that aspect of going, man, how can we get our, our guys to support us? And, and Eric's uh, article was, was really uh, was spot on. So I thank him for, for that article. And if anybody wants to see it, um, I'm going to include that in the links down below in our show notes. So I do encourage you guys to read it. So, Eric, thank you for being here, first of all, and I really want, the first question I really want to ask you is, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in, in emergency management and also the, le- the whole aspect of leadership, because I find that uh, really fascinating. Well, thank you, Todd. It's great to be here and speak with you, and it's uh, also great to be speaking with your listeners. Um, so I'm director of, of research for a program called the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. We are a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, which is as many words as you can stick together in one title. We were formed shortly after 9-11, actually after the anthrax attacks, when the federal government realized that if the different agencies and entities didn't play well together, they weren't able to collaborate and coordinate they were not going to be able to effectively address this new world, which now included uh, terror threats at the homeland as well as the natural disasters and other things that, that come along all the time. And you recall that DHS was formed, putting a lot of agencies together under one umbrella that didn't necessarily feel like they were had a natural home there necessarily, but it was now, we're going to make this work. We have been doing that ever since then. We now actually work a lot with state and local uh, government entities as well as with the private sector and the nonprofit sector because they're all involved in both preparedness and response and recovery. Right. And and it is it's sort of the the whole of community which uh, you know FEMA made famous under Craig Fugate. That's really a, a philosophy we embraced before we had those words and now certainly after those words are out there. And so we now have about 750 alumni of our uh, executive education program. Uh, that range from people who are running federal agencies to the police commissioner here in Boston, Billy Evans, people in, e- in EMS and fire, uh, I say as well as at big corporations. And we have, I've been with the program since 2008. Uh, I came from Harvard Business School, we're actually Harvard Business School Publishing, where I was writing and producing events. Uh, and I came over uh, after act- having uh, hired two of my, who are now my colleagues as speakers for conferences around business planning for pandemic. So my, my early career was in communications, mostly in private sector, and then working at the business school. I knew a lot about the private side of things and the, the aspects of leadership and organizational behavior that are typically addressed in, in those corporate settings. You know, how do you run a business unit? How do you align goals and strategies and those kind of things? And I came into this world uh, of emergency management and emergency response, I was really fascinated. Uh, certainly, I've, I've learned as much as I've taught, I think, over the, the time, these last 
eight years that I've been with this program and really enjoyed getting to know people in the field. And part of my job now, and it's thanks to the alumni that we have, is to whenever possible get out in the field and spend time with leaders in the moment or as soon after as we can get there to see what works, what doesn't work, uh, and how can we distill that into general principles that we can then teach people going forward. And so I was on the ground in the Gulf after the, during the Deepwater Horizon response. Uh, I was in New York and New Jersey during the Sandy response. Uh, my colleagues and I did the most expensive leadership review of the Boston Marathon bombing response. And then H1N1, Ebola, the domestic side of Ebola. So whenever we can, we get out there and, and uh, as I say, and try and experience it in the field. So what we're trying to bring together, what I try and uh, bring forward both in teaching and writing, is this combination of the academic rigor of making sure that there's some substance to what we're talking about, but also blended with real-world experience, because a purely theoretical approach to this is not going to work. If we don't give people things that are useful, we're just wasting their time. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, if I don't make sure they're rigorous, I, it just becomes a series of anecdotes, and we can't teach them systematically uh, over time and over different locations. And, uh, and so, as I said, that's how I came to this, and I have, I've learned a lot, and I, and I think that – and I urge this to, you, to your listeners as well. I think one of the things I've learned to do really well is ask stupid questions <laughs> uh, or sometimes state the obvious. Because, again, you come in with any situation with a lot of assumptions, and if you've been in a profession for 20 years, you know how things have always been done. Right. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of bias baked in there and just sort of just the way things go. Uh, if I come in as an outsider and say, so, so why are you doing it that way, or what's the purpose of this, or gee, what's really being accomplished here, I have that distance and status as the outsider um, to get away with that. Yeah. Uh, and that also helps in terms of, the, you know, you mentioned the senior executives and getting them involved. Again, it's one of the roles I, I have played in companies is, is being able to, it really can be hard internally to push the message up through the formal chains of command and the formal hierarchy to say, hey, we need, we need the boss there for this. So as an outsider can do that in ways that, that have it get through that you can't do internally. So uh, I, try to, I try to become the master of asking stupid questions <laughs> and trying to hopefully get smart answers. I agree with you there a lot. You know, I always ask the why question. Um, I remember this story. It might have been a joke, but it, it, I use it as a, as a good story. And it starts off with this uh, woman. She's teaching her daughter how to bake. And then so she puts the, the bread or whatever, the cake inside the, the, the oven. And uh, she puts a, a pan of water in there. And the little girl goes, hey, Mom, why, why do you put the pan in there? And the mom goes, I don't know. That's just what my mom did. But let's give her a call and find out. So she calls up Grandma. And, and Grandma says, oh, I don't know why I put the pan of water in there. That's what my mom did. And, and in this case, Great Grandma's alive. And she calls Great Grandma. And Great Grandma says, I don't know why you guys do it, but my stove is broke. You know? And <laughs> You know, <laughs> so there's there's things that we do that maybe at one point had purpose, but really today they don't, and we just do it because we've, that's what we've always done. And asking those why questions, um, you know, are, are really are really important. Absolutely. So really quick, I, I want to kind of segue into the the whole concept of the turbulent leadership. Um, I, I saw your piece that you did on, on that and talking about the Boston bombing and, and, and those things. And, and realistically, as emergency managers, we are stepping into leadership at the time of everybody else's worst day, whether it be the Boston bombing or the hurricane or the large fires that we have out here. And we really have to empathize with, our, our, with the victims, but at the same time, 
show strong leadership so we can get through that crisis and start to the rebuilding process. So tell me a little bit about that theory of the turbulent leadership. So I do see this as, as a, a time of extraordinary turbulence. And I think over history, we go through them. There are periods where they're more stable uh, and then you get turbulent and you sort of ch- your what they would say in in the in Asia as a, a change in the nature of the age that we are going through a period of transition and with transition comes turbulence. So you you know many of your listeners will be familiar with the acronym VUCA, uh, which the military came up with as they you know began to realize we were facing disaggregated ter- you know, threat, military threats, not just a monolithic enemy in the Soviet Union, and uh, that being volat- a world that's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous which talks about it being hard to find cause and effect all the time. It can be hard to see if you do X, you can't predict whether Y, Z or something else is going to happen. There are just so many factors involved. And I've added two more letters to that just to, because everyone needs their own acronym. I call, <laughs> it a, I call it a VUCAST world. So it's VUCA plus S and T. S stands for system scale change, and that is changes in the climate. That is a long-term trend, and we can debate who caused it forever, but it's, you can see the, the impact coming, and that's one that is causing very large-scale change in the environment, and we, can't quite, we, we don't know quite what's happening when it happens. Uh, but also, we have an aging population. You see technology changing in ways that are really fundamentally or reorienting the social contract as we automate a lot of jobs. And so you've got that big system-scale change. And then the T is for ubiquitous transparency where almost everyone can see almost everything in almost real time. Now, just over the last couple of days, we've all seen what happened to United Airlines when that right. passenger was dragged off. And what would, have, what would have 10 years ago have been an isolated security incident that may have gotten reported in the Chicago Sun-Times and maybe gotten picked up eventually someplace smaller, all of a sudden went globally viral. And the stock price goes way down, and people are saying they're never going to fly them again. And that all was possible, that sort of instant tsunami, because of the incredible connectivity we have in the world now, the interconnectedness. And so that is something in which leaders really need to be aware, because everyone's watching you, and when you make a decision and something starts to happen, the spark can be lit, and it goes global instantly. And so the challenge is there. You know, we, we sort of have, a, have a basic framework we, we're approaching leadership, uh, which we've found works over time and I think will work going forward, is looking at sort of three facets of things. The first of those is knowing yourself and who you are. Uh, that includes everything from uh, you know, just being aware of, of your background and, and your, your education, your expertise, your experiences, and having reflected on them to know what you can learn from them, uh, but also being self-aware and having emotional intelligence. And then even knowing uh, sort of how you're, how you're hardwired. How does your brain work under stress, for example? Uh, we all, even people who've been in the field for a long time, when confronted with, with a threat, will go a week to what we call the emotional basement, or it's that triple F, freeze, flight, fight response. And if you aren't able to reset and get out of that, you'll get stuck in that panic mode and not be able to behave, you know, be, behave well and get the outcome you want. So if you're a firefighter or a police officer, you go there and you'll come right back very, very quickly in a familiar situation because you've been trained and you've had the experience. You say, okay, gunshots, I know what to do. Right. General public hears that. They don't. They go down and they can have a hard, very hard time getting coming up. Elected officials, senior executives, if they've not been through this, they don't have the training. 
they, and we, one of the things we teach is how to have a personal, we call a trigger script. So as simple as taking three deep breaths, okay, that calms you, that resets your brain like restarting the computer. You can then get into some productive problem solving. So that's knowing yourself and knowing how to work with yourself, almost be you know, sort of smarter than yourself, is the first piece. The second is understanding the situation. And that's not just situational awareness in the traditional emergency management terms, but it really is understanding the complexity. Who are all the stakeholders? What are their interests? What are they likely to do? How are they likely to respond? So yes, it is that sort of common data set. It's, it includes traditional situational awareness, but it's bigger than that. And then the final one is looking at connectivity of the system. Who am I connected to positively, negatively, and who's in the middle? So is the public on my side or against me? Is the media going for us or against us? And being sensitive to what's going to happen in that larger system. And when you have those three dimensions that can use those almost as lenses to look at what you're doing, you're better able to lead yourself and lead others. Because uh, you'll ask smarter questions. You will push for what you, you know, you'll be more open to what you do, realizing there's a lot more you don't know than you do know. Um, people can get blinded, and we've seen that in, in many responses where they get stuck on what they can see and what they, what, they're for sure, what they know for sure, but they miss everything that's going around that they aren't quite sure of, can lead to uh, not good outcomes. And so this whole, tur- this whole area, time of turbulence makes it tough, but it's actually a good time to, to get used to this idea of complexity and things not being quite so linear and predictable as they, as they once were. Um, and once you sort of embrace that, it becomes easier. It becomes much, much easier to uh, to find your way forward. Let's take a quick break here for a second, and when we come back, I want to talk to you about analysis paralysis. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. 315 and 314, there is at least one person that's been shot. Somebody is still shooting inside. Are you ready for the unthinkable? Call our friends at High Speed TACMED. They provide custom emergency planning and training that saves lives. With years of experience in law enforcement, search and rescue, responding to and managing large-scale incidents, HSTM will evaluate and prepare written plans, training sessions, drills, and debriefs, leaving you with the necessary tools and experience that can save lives. Call HSTM today to discuss your specific needs, and the staff of High Speed TACMED will help ensure that you're ready and are in complete compliance. Call High Speed TACMED today, 805-419-0024. Again, that's 805-419-0024. The friendly staff at HSTM is standing by. Welcome back from the break. So, Eric, you know, one of the issues that I've seen happen a lot of times, mostly in training, thank God, but um, people want to have every bit of piece of information that they could possibly get and won't make decisions sometimes until they have everything. And one of the things that I've learned, and, and I've been doing this for a long time, um, 
I started back in uh, working as an EMT in the field back in 1988 and all the way up to, to what I'm doing today. And what I've learned to do is find the information I have and make a decision based upon that information and then adjust our, our way through it If we, once we get more information to, to make that change. How, how do you teach leaders to not get into that analysis paralysis? Well, and the example you give is a great one, and having had that experience in emergency medicine is uh, – you, you realize, I think, when you, when you get to the scene, uh, you're going to know a certain amount of information. You're ne- you, you know you're not going to know it all, and that it's going to change over time. And that's some of the attitude we try and, uh, and teach to people is that, uh, particularly in these big, complex events, you are not going to know it all, yet you have to move forward. So we, what we use as a tool, and I apologize for the acronym. It's one of the worst ones we've ever come up with. But something called the pop doc loop, which is and this is based on the neuroscience and looking at how the the brain works, and this and it's built on Boyd's OODA loop, which many folks may know that observe, orient, decide, and act that they teach fighter pilots. This is a, has two more steps because uh, the situations leaders face are a bit more complex than those that you fi- you find in a uh, in a fighter jet. So the pop doc, the left hand side, is the is sort of the analysis piece. It's, it's perceived. So what data do, can I gather? What's out there? What can I know? And then the O is orient. What does it mean? Are there patterns in that data so we can begin to see, I get some meaning behind this. The second P is for predict. If I can see a pattern, I should be able to predict what's coming next. You then make a transition to the dock side. We draw this like a figure eight. Over to the dock. This is now where you're taking action. So the D is for decide. If you're making a prediction, you now should be able to make a decision. O is for operationalize. If I take that decision, what resources am I going to need? When am I going to need them? Where are they going to need to be? And then C is communicate. Who needs to know we're doing this? Who needs to be informed? Who needs to coordinate? Who needs to collaborate? And then you go back around again. That figure eight draws you around back to perceive. Once I've taken it and operationalized it and told people about it, what changed? Did it work? Did it not work? And then you go through again. And sometimes just visually giving people that in those six steps, as clunky as the acronym may be, reminds people you actually have to keep going around that. And this is what, when you're doing things well, this is naturally what you are doing. Uh, And you you can go do it in a few seconds, or you actually can use it as a structure for a staff meeting and take 20 minutes or an hour to go through what's going on. But it kind of pushes you along to say, hey, I can't get stuck on that pop side where I am just doing paralysis, getting paralysis by analysis. You've got to make decisions. You've got to and make sure once you've made them that you can uh, you're able to carry them out and make sure everyone knows what's going on. Yeah, I think sometimes, especially when you're talking about some of the senior leadership where they're in the political position and also uh, like mayors and and uh, elected officials, that they don't want to make a decision that's going to have the negative political impact on them. But at the same time, I think that um, if you take a look at Katrina, for example, where they did not move those buses in time, and that became like the focal point of some you know, studies that we've done, that that was based upon the paralysis of not making that decision, and then by the time they wanted to do it, it was too late, and, and they were stuck in that. So it's just really important for, for people to understand that there is that decision process, and maybe this is something that we should, as, as emergency managers, take that tool into a, a meeting and teach our, our elected officials that kind of information of what the decision-making process is like in the EM. I think that's really kind of a, a cool idea. Yeah, I, I think that one of the interesting things, and it was very true in Katrina, we also saw it in deep water, was people on the professional side, so people in emergency management, having to do that dance with the elected officials and their other advisors. 
So understanding how that political world works, how important the optics are, um, how you're going to need to feed that beast to a certain extent, but you want to try and do it in a way that has the minimal impact on your operations. So yes, you can get done the job you need to get done while knowing that the news cameras need something to photograph, the, the mayor or governor needs something to stand next to and say, here's what we're doing. You've got to engage in a bit of that because their world is as valid as is the operational world. You can't If you ignore them, you're going to be in big trouble, but nor can you let them run the operational side because they'll screw it up. <laughs> they don't know <laughs> what so they're true. doing. <laughs> that is true. We, we joke, and, and, and uh, we always like to put our policy group as far away from the emergency operations center as possible. You know, that way they're not really interfering with what we're doing over there. But uh, uh, at the same time, you're right. We, we do have to give them that, that, that optics for them for their – you know, it is political. And everything does end up being political because they're the ones that are going to feel it when, um, you know, if their recovery is not going well. And, and they're the ones that are going to potentially lose their, their job. So I do understand where they're coming from on that. Right. So, so let's let's go back a little bit and talk about getting that senior leadership involved early in the in the drills and the exercises, and what can we do to get them to understand that they're not the ones necessarily that are going to run the tactics and the operations aspect of it, but they do have the political side. Do you put that in that drill? Do you recommend that, or, or what do you think? I, I think you do. I mean, I think that. So again, one of the one of the tools we teach is is drawing something we call a situation map. And I'm sorry we haven't got visuals here, but if you imagine a just a eight and a half by eleven piece of paper, and in the middle you draw a circle, which is whatever the technical event is. So if it's a bombing, a hurricane, a industrial accident, whatever it is, that's the technical event. And then you draw around it the circles for the other situations that are going to evolve from it. So if you look at deep water, for example, there was obviously an environmental situation. There was a legal situation. There was a political situation, a media situation, business continuity, and around mm-hmm. you go. And all of a sudden you get a lot of circles. Now, if you're the, if you're the incident commander, as one of our students was actually for that, for that event, um, your job isn't necessarily to solve all of those, but, you're, but you need to know – that they're unfolding around you and they may have some impact on what you are doing. As it, when you do something, it will have an impact on each of those or some of those and be aware of them and know what's going on because, you know, as I say, you, you have to understand these other things are, go, are going to unfold around you and that there will be, there will be some, uh, some effect on you. And I think that in terms of, so in terms of getting people involved early, there's a couple things you can do. One is to invite people. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't always thought of, but particularly if you're if you're in the public side, to invite the mayor or the governor, to stop by and see. You know, you don't don't go and say we need you for four hours because you won't get them, right. um, but say, hey, stop by. We're going to be we're going to be using that new equipment you just helped us pay for. Thank you very much. Uh, or testing is out. Come on by and see it. And they tend to you know they think it's cool, right? It, <laughs> it, it, I mean, again, it's it's it, it, when you come into this world as a as a newbie or from the outside, it can be a little intimidating because there's a lot of jargon, a lot of specialized uh, expertise and processes that go on. But it's kind of cool. It's kind of fun. So, hey, can you stop by is one way to – and they see it and they'll get – you know, again, depending on who it is, get a little intrigued and interested. Also, having – asking – again, work your way up the chain to get to the person who has their ear to ask to interview that person to find out what questions they're going to want answered. So, Mr. Mayor, if we have – a, a wildfire that threatens this part of town. What, what, are, what are you going to want to know from us? 
Uh, so we're prepared to help serve you, which opens the conversation in the way that, oh, I hadn't, you know, let me think about that. And it begins to open a dialogue because what you're trying to get to is having enough of a relationship that when the event actually happens, there's some level of trust established, some level of comfort. Elected officials tend to be very comfortable with their political advisors because they're with them all the time. Right, right. And they came through the campaign with them. So they've been through some rough times with those people and they trust them. If there's no interaction until the bad thing happens, you've had no time to build up trust. And so, you know, and it, it helps when they're around for a while. Obviously, you can't, if you go to a brand new elected official, again, I would try and get in as early as possible. And just the, the pretext is I want to know what your priorities are and what you're going to be concerned about so we can serve you better. And that will, you know, you're putting it on their terms. One of the best relationships we have seen was here after the Boston Marathon bombings, where our governor, Deval Patrick, who was technically in charge, he was a senior elected official involved there, but he never actually tried to assume operational command. Uh, He told us and and, and many other people we interviewed told us that he would come into the room and say, how can I be helpful? What do you need me to do? Uh, Because he was confident enough in the people who he had in place, and granted it was his second term, so he'd been around for, at that point, seven, almost eight years, and he had appointed several of these people, but he knew them. And so he knew that was not his area of expertise, but he trusted them. And also to say, he know he could be useful, so he would, you know, okay, you need me to say this at the press conference? Great, I'll go do that. You need me to call so-and-so? I can do that. And that was a really confident place for him to be, which is different than we've seen other other governors be in other other responses. That's really great. You know, I, and so kind of what I get out of that right now is that, number one, you know, like I said, we jokingly try to shun them. But so don't, you know, really build that relationship with them. Don't put them out in the corner because they're going to have stuff they, they're going to want to do because they're going to have their agenda specifically. And you want to be part of that agenda. And then the, the third thing is, is make them feel part of the team. Right. And yeah, that's 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 really that's a that's a different way of looking at it for sure because you know we've you know I don't want to say it's been adversarial but we always want to do our thing and we always know for you know when we're the the first responders and whatnot that yes these are the mayors but he's going to be out in a couple of years and a new guy's going to come in and we're going to have to rebuild this again and so just let us do our thing but I like the idea of building that that relationship is having them really part of the team because they really do have major impact on on uh, on what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, because don't forget that the, um, you know, first of all, they're in a role that they, they're used to being in charge. If it's, right. you know, an elected official or a CEO, they're used to being in charge. When they come into a situation, they're going to tend to want to take charge. So you better figure out what you're going to give them to do so they can feel like they're in charge without getting in your way. Right. So if, you, so if you're bringing them into an ICS environment, for example, and they see everybody's got a, a vest on identifying a role, you better have a vest for the mayor or something. To, so they feel part of the team and they know what, and here's what we need you to do. And again, if they've been through it, if they're around for a while, they get used to it, but they build a level of trust. But yeah, you, they're going to be involved, so you might as well plan for it. And the general public will tend to look to those people. That's who their trust is in. They don't necessarily know who the EMT chief, the EMS chief is. Right. Because those people aren't in the news that often. So they that's where that trust level is. And so you've got to leverage that and work with it as best you can. That is so true. I mean, and, and like I said before, they're the ones that are going to get the brunt of the, the bad press if things go sideways. You know, you, you, they, you, never, you never throw the fire chief under the bus. It's always the, the city manager or the mayor that's going to get the, get the hit on that for sure. So let's change gears here for a little bit because one of the things I found interesting when I was doing some looking at your website 
um, was your elephant initiative. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And what I thought was kind of cool too is I actually saw how this could actually be an emergency management issue because looking at elephants not just as a, the animal what they are, but they are a, a great asset to us all as humans. And we want to always protect our assets. And so can you tell me a little bit about that and what you guys are doing and and uh, and how we can help protect that beautiful asset that we have? Absolutely. So this is the Elephant Wisdom Project. And it has – what I'm trying to do is, is raise money for holistic approaches to elephant conservation. And I picked elephants because we all – we, we are very empathetic toward elephants, right? We're, they are, we've read about them in storybooks. We see them on TV and in movies and sometimes in person. So that we, have, we identify with elephants. However, they are part of a much larger system, much larger ecosystem that involves the people who live in the area, the other animals and plants and all of, all of that. And they are a very vital part of that ecosystem. And if they were to go away, uh, the implications are dramatic in terms of uh, lots of I won't go into the detail here, but lots of the functioning of the uh, ecosystem, and it's true of every ecosystem. There are mm. different keys of key species, uh, and when you get rid of one, the, the law of unintended, unintended consequences kicks in in a big way. Uh, the other reason I picked elephants was that the at the current kill rate, the elephants could be could be extinct in the wild in Africa within ten years, and that to me was very scary. That's a very <laughs> short time, and it's an, a, a you know, elephants, we think of as something that's always been here and you think always will be here. But between poaching activity, other intersection with human beings, as, as the human settlements expand, looking for uh, farm land and things, there's, if the interactions aren't handled well, elephants wind up dead. So lots of, and, and then climate change is also stressing the environment, both for people and for animals. So that's sort of one piece of it. And what I, what I wanted to bring to it was this understanding of leading in this systems-based environment. What I talked to you about before in terms of the situation map and thinking about the different stakeholders, that's about thinking about leading in a system. And when, you know, frankly, from my experience, if I sat down with you and said, I want to tell you about systems-based leadership, your eyes would roll back in your head and you'd say, how fast can I get away from this guy? <laughs> if I sit down and say, I want to talk to you about elephants, it's like, oh, tell me more. <laughs> so it's a bit right. about finding the right package to deliver the message. But I, I really do sincerely believe that if, if we don't have a world where elephants thrive, we're not going to have one where humans can thrive very long either. And this is this whole notion of complexity in this, in this volatile world that we don't fully understand when, when one piece of the puzzle, if one piece of the puzzle goes away, what happens to the rest of the puzzle? I mean, it, it, there are implications for all of us. So it's a way I'm, I'm trying to stimulate thinking about it uh, while also doing a good thing. Uh, the money all goes to uh, support the Big Life Foundation, and they run anti-poaching patrols in East Africa, in Ken, Kenya and Tanzania, as well as uh, community building. So it's a, they are having a holistic approach. They are working with local communities to help them better appreciate their natural resources and how to thrive in harmony with them. Um, so they're a small organization, but they're doing great work. And, um, and that's how I'm trying to bring together so the, the different pieces of, of my work and life of the commitment to leadership and helping to advance leadership education, um, but also trying to make the world a better place. So and I'm really glad you picked up on it. I appreciate that. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I, you know, I love one of my hobbies is to be outside and to be in the outdoors and hiking and camping and, and, uh, that stuff. And, and when I saw that, that was like, wow, it's like, that's really cool and, and something I can really get behind for sure. 
All right, so here comes the hardest question of the day. What book, or two or three, what books do you recommend to somebody who is just getting into leadership positions and emergency management? You're right. That is the toughest question of the day. And as I look around my office, which has about 500 books, uh, <laughs> read a lot, people. Read a lot. There's a lot of good things out there. So um, to be purely self-promotional, I would recommend you read a, a free ebook that I wrote called Your Critical First 10 Days as a Leader. As I say, it's free from O'Reilly Media. I'm sure I'll put the link in the uh, show notes. So you can get that. It's very brief. It's short, about seven or 8,000 words. Uh, but then the one I would take you to is um, called Turn This Ship Around by David Marquet, um, M-A-R-Q-U-E-T. He was a uh, nuclear submarine commander, and uh, given his first command, he was uh, expected to go to, to one boat, one ship, uh, which he knew thoroughly knew the mechanics, the people, everything. Three weeks before he was going to get there, they reassigned him to the worst performing submarine in the fleet. And this is the story of how he turned it around and how he turned it around by getting every, every member of his crew to think like leaders. It's a practical book. It's a quick read. I, I think it's true. And uh, David's come and spoken to our NPLI class here at Harvard a couple of times. So I, it, it's, it's, a re, it's really good to find practical wisdom to put to use. Um, and then I think if, if a, a classic is Peter Senge's The Fifth Discipline, which is about becoming a learning organization. And this really goes into how you systematize learning and continuous learning within an organization. I think it's so important in emergency management because our threats are evolving, our social contexts are evolving, and building an organization that continually learns and shares learning is smart about asking questions that's really the key to, be, to succeeding going forward. You've got to have that adaptive capacity, that resilience to move forward. So start with those three, and, um, and there's lots more out there, but those are my three I'd recommend off the top of my head. That's great. I appreciate that a lot. You know, it's kind of funny. You're the uh, second person that I've spoken to that's talked about the uh, fifth discipline. So those of you listening today, uh, the second recommendation, and, and I would go out there and get that book. As a matter of fact, I got mine. But, but so, yeah, get that book today. How can we get in touch with you if somebody wants to hear from you or learn more about you and learn about more about the uh, uh, your elephant initiative, all that kind of stuff? So the information about me you can find at ericmcnulty.com, uh, my personal website, which has information on what I do and, and as well as the Elephant Wisdom Project. In terms of the, the uh, National Preparedness Leadership Initiative here at Harvard, if you just Google NPLI Harvard, it'll pop right up. The URL is kind of convoluted, so I'm not going to give that to you. But just, just put it in the search engine, NPLI Harvard will pop right up. Uh, we have a lot of free resources on our site in terms of papers we've written. We've got uh, lessons learned from a number of incidents. There's lots there as well as information about our executive education programs. Uh, and we would love to hear from people. We have uh, alums all across the country, and um, I'm sure your listeners, probably some of them are your listeners, and also uh, they know people. So we'd love to hear from folks. That's awesome. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being here and taking time out of your day to talk to me about uh, leadership and the stuff that you're doing. I think it's really, really good and really important stuff. So uh, I'd love to have you back sometime. All right, Todd, thank you very much. I'm happy to do it anytime you'd like. If you're trying to reach people in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we are bringing in guests from around the world to talk about best practices and trends in emergency management and response. 
We also have the blog on EM Weekly's website. For more information, please email Brian at brian at emweekly.com. 